0: Welcome and thank you for joining us on our latest installment of Women at Ropes Talk, a podcast series brought to you by the Women's Forum at Ropes & Gray. I'm Megan Bakke, a partner at Ropes & Gray with a practice focusing on intellectual property, life sciences, and technology transactions. And I'm also co-head of the firm's Digital Health Initiative and managing partner of our Silicon Valley office. On this episode, I'm joined by my colleague, Allison Gal, who's based in Boston. Hi, Allison. So let's kick things off. Why
1: don't you go ahead and introduce yourself and provide an overview of your practice? Thanks, Megan. I'm a partner in Ropes' Capital Solutions and private credit practice. A large part of my practice is representing companies, lenders and groups of lenders in financings or debt restructurings that have a bespoke character or occur in a challenging or stressed environment. And I often work with our restructuring colleagues in those situations. Also, I work on intellectual property-focused financing transactions, such as synthetic royalty deals and clinical trial financings. That's the sort of thing I work with you, Megan. Yeah, it's been great to work together on royalty deals.
0: So who is the special guest you'll be interviewing on this episode?
1: Our guest today is Marjorie Gu. Marjorie is the general counsel of Rodan and Fields one of our clients and someone I've gotten to know well in the course of working with the company.
0: And what would you say is most notable about Marjorie and her career?
1: Well, in getting to know Marjorie and and why I thought she would be a really great guest for this podcast series is the way that she has grown by making the most of her opportunities and, and being open to growing in varied directions to take on new challenges. She is so wonderful at fostering connections And is just a terrific example of how being a positive, kind, and outgoing person can be a great career strategy, as well as being a terrific way to live your life. That's so great. So with that, I will turn it over to you and Marjorie. Hi, Marjorie. Can
0: you introduce yourself to our listeners
1: Hi, Allison.
2: thank you. Um, it's so great to be here with you today and talking about legal careers and all of those things that attach to that. I'm Marjorie Gu. I'm the
1: Chief Legal Officer at Rodan & Fields. For those unfamiliar with Rodan, what kind of a company is Rodan and & Fields? And what are your responsibilities as Chief Legal Officer?
2: We are a premium skincare company Actually, I should say we are a skincare and hair care company with most recently having launched a whole new category of hair care. And as the chief legal officer, I sit on the C-suite executive team and we're responsible for guiding strategy with the company. And I have a team that at times has ranged from 10 to 18 um, members. With around five attorneys and other legal professionals, as well as some external
1: full time contracting resources. And I should say also, in full disclosure, that I not only work with you, Marjorie, but I'm a client. I use the skincare products and I've started using the hair care products, and I can attest that they're wonderful and I, I do get compliments. Marjorie, to kick it off, can you tell us how did you come to be in your current position? I was lucky
2: to have met through some nonprofit board work at an organization called Envision Education, some partners at Spencer Stewart who were involved on the recruiting side. And they were aware of my interest in taking on a broader role as either a general counselor or a chief legal officer. And the position at Rodan and Fields opened. And so through a series of
1: conversations, I ended up in this position What would you say are your goals in being chief legal officer of an operating company? What are you trying to accomplish day to day? CLO doesn't just sit back and not do anything. We're actually
2: grinding out some work as well. How do you do that? It's a a very different role. You have to have time for strategic work. You have to have time for just execution. The relationship building aspects of being in a C-suite position are paramount. And so you have to make sure that you know what people need from you, you know what you can offer them. You develop mutual expectations and goals in a way that respects the diversity of approaches
1: across the team and across the board. And one thing I've always wondered about, Marjorie, just how can one prepare to be a general counsel?
2: I don't think that anyone is prepared (laughs) for taking on the general counsel or chief legal officer role in the truest sense of knowing exactly what they're going to be doing. Each organization has a unique set of factors going on within it that will require the attention of the chief legal officer Everyone will have a different CEO to work with and partner on the business with, and everyone will have a different board that they will be managing up to and reporting to. The chief legal officer doesn't just report to the CEO. They also report into the board on different
1: matters from time to time. Were there specific things that you did when you first got the position that helped you to hit the ground running? I was very lucky
2: when I joined Rodan and Fields that we had as a business partner, Deloitte, and they had a chief legal officer workshop for new chief legal officers that they provide to their clients. I spent two days working with five or six of their consultants exclusively on how do you do this thing? How do you take on such a vast array of oversight
1: responsibilities and day-to-day work. Wow, that sounds like a terrific program. Anything else that helps you on an ongoing basis? I would say
2: that tapping into my peer networks, joining things like TechGC and Women's General Counsel Network was a huge resource for me. And so just asking a lot of questions and developing a really clear 30, 60, 90 day plan and making sure that the expectations set out in that plan are clearly aligned with your CEO. And the other thing that I would uh, suggest is actively seeking out 360 degree feedback at some junctures in that first year, which I did and was incredibly helpful. That's how I came to be here and how I held
1: on through those first 12 months of learning how to do this thing. How have things been at the company lately? Have there been any interesting challenges that you've had to navigate? Life at a skincare company is never
2: dull, and there's always a lot of interesting things happening. In skincare and hair care, any sort of consumer products, and also particularly in the cosmetic space, we have to keep a keen eye on regulatory issues. Increasingly, different ingredients are regulated in ways that support consumer health. And traditionally some of that regulation has not been happening. So we had the modernization of Cosmetics Regulation Act come through, MOCRA, and our team has been busy preparing for some new disclosures and filings that will be required with the federal government that again will be helpful for consumer protection. You might think skincare, we're just focusing on the products, but there is plenty of corporate work going on. And we've had a couple of strategic resets during the time I've been here. So there is never a dull moment. I've really been enjoying the work. Can you talk a bit about how you work with a board and how the board supports you? Well, I give a lot of uh, support to the company and to my team. I receive a lot of learning in return, as well as just managing the day-to-day in the company and strategy for the business. I also work with this incredible board who has a vast well of experience and is very generous with um, providing us with learnings always on
1: a go-forward basis as we try to create more success and value. Wow, that sounds really exciting, Marjorie. I've always been quite intimidated by the idea of being a chief legal counsel, uh, either at a fund or a company, because I know you have to field everything that is thrown at you. How does a person equip themselves to take on a role like yours? So my career isn't typical, I would say, of
2: a corporate attorney. I started my studies in chemistry and was interested in becoming potentially a patent attorney and um, I had sort of a geographic plot twist. Following my undergraduate at the University of Washington in chemistry, family circumstances had me living in London. And so I went to law school in England and attended University College London, UCL and so i was extremely lucky to start my legal career there with one of the medium-sized commercial firms titmissaner that's now Deckert, and then moved to baker and mckenzie so really working with sort of big law all throughout that time period i was solely specialized in intellectual property and in fact helped uh reboot the trademark practice at both firms how long did you practice in london I moved back to the United States after a decade in London to Palo Alto with Baker and Mackenzie again in their intellectual property practice. And when I was at Baker and Mackenzie, I felt like to be the best intellectual property attorney, I wanted to work in a niche sort of subject matter boutique firm. And so I spent some time at Finnegan Henderson, which is one of the premier IP firms in the United States, highly specialized with sophisticated
1: IP work that they do across all fronts, but something was still missing. When did you make the transition from law firm practice to working in-house? I was
2: very fortunate to have been recruited by a client there, Hewlett-Packard, and moved into the Hewlett-Packard company at the time. They had not yet um, split into two. And we acquired Compaq while I was there. Carly Fiorini was the CEO. It was a very interesting time for the company. I had a wonderful mentor there, John Tiege, who was the trademark counsel. And interestingly, because Hewlett Packard was so innovation and IP focused, The lawyers on the IP team had really, really interesting work. And I built an anti-counterfeiting program that operated globally with um, hubs in the United States, Europe, and Asia. And we actually managed to raise share in the printer cartridge uh, sector just through the work of our team. In parallel, I was starting to build a family and moved to Oakland and realized that I wanted to work more locally to where I was going to be living with my family. And so I have the real true fortune of being recruited
1: into working with the Clorox company on their intellectual property team. From what you've told me, your time at Clorox gave you some really important opportunities to grow and to understand your full capabilities. How did that happen? And when I arrived, uh, shortly thereafter, some of that work was moved
2: to the legal team outside of the United States. And so I looked around and talked with my um, supervising counsel there, and, and we came up with a plan for what to do with my time. And luckily, I was able to support what they had then, which was called a new ventures group. And they were doing some experimenting with small scale investing in startups outside of the company. And we were also experimenting with strategic partnering through outside externally facing brand licensing programs. And through that work, it became clear that I had good touch for working with the business and the business enjoyed working with me. Laura Stein, who's now a chief legal officer at Mondelez, was general counsel at the Clorox company. And she was a firm believer in developing her attorneys in place, whether they were staying at Clorox or moving to other opportunities. She wanted to be sure that everybody had solid commercial skills. At Clorox, there was a strong belief that each business should have uh, its own individual leadership team. And so I was lucky to sit on the leadership teams of the businesses that I worked with. And so, you know, you'd have the full basic complement of what you might find in a C-suite team, the general manager, the supply chain folks, the marketing folks, the insights folks, you know, all all sorts of leaders who were moving the businesses along and all of the businesses, generally speaking, were billion dollars plus. And so I was the home care attorney for a significant period of time. And then I moved to be the attorney supporting the Glad Products company. And that's where it really kind of came into focus of having the ability to really branch out to potentially
1: become a general counsel. Can you talk a bit about your time at Glad Products? It sounds like you essentially became a general counsel to that joint venture. The Glad Products Company is a joint venture between, at least
2: at that time I think it still continues, between um, Procter & Gamble and the Clorox Company based on a set of intellectual property licenses and other commercial agreements. And so it was extremely fascinating work because we had public company employees from Procter & Gamble embedded in our Glad Products Company and a little bit vice versa on the R&D side. And so we had to have a very complex web of intellectual property rights entering and flowing out of the company, as well as addressing the need to not have material non-public information about either company flowing to the other company via the activities in the Glad products company. And also as the lead commercial attorney for the Glad Products Company, I was able to be the secretary of the Joint Venture Board, which was a very interesting position. The people on the board were highly uh, ranked executives at Procter & Gamble, often the next in line for the CEO position and the lead of R&D in some sort of global area for Procter & Gamble. And then we had our um, lead executives as well on that board. So that was a very good training ground for moving out to potentially become a general counsel or a very senior attorney on the commercial side within Clorox or somewhere else outside of the company. So I want to pause there because that was a lot of information, but that's the basic groundwork for that generalist approach.
1: Yeah. And just in listening to you, Marjorie, anyone listening who's a, a young attorney could be furiously taking notes on all of the ways that you might position yourself to have an interesting career like yours. But of course, your career is unique. Is there anything that you can say that's of a general nature about your approach that led you to have such a great career with so many interesting and varied opportunities that helped you develop? I would just say I didn't expect to be in London and I was there.
2: And I was staying longer than I thought. So I found the law school literally down the road from me. I didn't realize at the time it's one of the top law schools in the UK. And then I found a firm that needed someone who didn't have a law degree yet, who could be a trademark agent. And then I found a bigger firm that could use an American that needed to reboot their trademark practice and so on. And what I would say in general is that in your journey, there will be multiple stops and some of them may be unexpected. So be prepared to explore a lot of different things and to deviate from your original plan. At many points, there may be an experience that might cause you to ask, am I in the right place? And flip the script and ask instead, what can I learn where I am? What can I learn from this experience? And always look for the silver lining of whatever is happening in your life and also realize that nobody builds their career alone. How do you figure out what opportunities to reach for? It's a wonderful gift to be able to speak with people and ask for help and brainstorm and benchmark and be relatively fearless in those conversations. And they don't always have to be within the organization you're in if you feel uncomfortable having those conversations there. Find a professional body, lean on your law school. If you were in law school, some people qualify outside of law school still. Find your peers from other situations who may not even be attorneys and talk to them about how you can flip your script and make sure you're looking on the bright side and realizing that if you're ruminating over something, a thing I like to say to myself is, if I've thought about something more than three times, which I also got the three times rule from Laura Stein at at Clorox, to notice you're still thinking about it and let it go. Or as I like to say, sit on a cactus and move on because you (laughs) need to spark your brain to move on. And then again, always look for what you can learn in any situation where you are and make the best of it.
1: I think that's so helpful and constructive and relevant because I know that people starting out in their careers are so worried about needing to plan it out and see how their career is gonna unfold. Were you like that at the beginning or have you always been a person who is able to, I guess, make the best and look for the best in the situation they're in and still look for opportunities?
2: I've always been the latter, that person who looks for opportunities. I once was assigned a mentee in one of my past lives and I sat down with them and said, well, what can I do to help you, you know, think about your career and and how do you think about it? And that person laid out. Well, here's how my plan is working. And he had planned everything from his undergraduate degree all the way through to what that position was going to bring to his portfolio of skills and where he was moving next. And I thought to myself, boy, he really doesn't need anything from me. (laughs) I was never the planner, but I've always
1: been, I guess, uh, what I would call a seeker. I guess it would be interesting to see whether that young person's career actually played out the way that they had thought it was going to or whether it's played out. Well, I can tell you that much. It's played (laughs) out well. So, you know, everyone has their
2: own approach,
1: but I think you still always need to look for what you can learn from wherever you are. You've talked a bit about the mentors that you've had and the efforts that you've made to mentor others. What would you say is the key? to being a good mentee that is how do you position yourself since we'll have younger people listening i think to be a person who attracts good mentoring i think you need to be
2: open to having good conversations with anyone you think might be a potential mentor and maybe even find some mentoring programs so you could have a structured practice of this and coming prepared to mentoring conversations with specific questions and you may have mentors in different areas of your life who are not all the same people and just realize that when someone is providing a mentoring resource most likely they have some level of accomplishment that means they will be busy and so you really want to respect their time and respect their wisdom and you may not always act on everything that you hear from a mentor but usually in those conversations you will attract a kernel of good information and maybe feedback and depending on the strength of your relationship with the mentor it could be feedback you don't want to hear but need to hear and so establishing a trusting relationship Kind of begins, I think, in mentoring with a, a lot of respect and that goes both ways, but particularly from the mentee towards the mentor and just set expectations. So I've had mentoring relationships that were set up from the beginning as only two meetings and they would be very specific. And have you had any experience establishing structured mentoring programs? As part of being a leader in the Women's Enterprise Resource Group at Clorox, we set up speed mentoring so people could have short, quick conversations with a bunch of different people. And we also had a longer term mentoring program that we structured in the way that I'm talking about. So you sit down with the person, you talk about how many times are we going to meet? Do we want to meet over coffee? Should we have lunch? Should we have just a regular meeting time during the business day? Here are the topics that I would be seeking advice on. Are you willing and able to provide input on those topics? And then I would say that over the years, I developed some informal mentoring relationships that became pretty profound in my life. I met one of the founding partners for one of the big legal search firms, MLA Global, when I was working at Baker and McKenzie in London. He and I stayed in touch throughout all of my career at Baker and McKenzie we took in associates in classes and we also had classes of practice groups and some of my best friends in the world are people that i started my trademark practice work with at Baker and McKenzie and they're all throughout the world and i've stayed in touch with them for many many years for me it's been super valuable to stay in touch with people that i've met along my journey and share news of each other's developments, you know, family life, professional life, celebrating one another. I think that's deeply important.
1: So Marjorie, you have a very busy life. You have a family that you devote attention to. You've got a challenging and interesting work environment. How do you stay in touch with your relationships in professional and personal? Just how do you make time to do that? Do you have any tips Or suggestions for the rest of us?
2: Well, one thing I would say never underestimate the power of a handwritten note. Send letters. I think maybe I'm a little bit of a romantic throwback to the day of letters, but I still believe in sending letters to people. It's a nice surprise and it gets their attention and it's
1: just a gentle way to say hello. That is such a nice idea. What about social media? Is that part of the picture? What other avenues do you use to be in touch with people? I think that I have to thank Meta for
2: Facebook. It Mm -hmm. is a way that people stay in touch, appropriately personal, so not everyone you know is going to be on your Facebook page, hopefully. And then folks that you want to retain professional relationships with, you can do that very handily through LinkedIn and avoid sort of the sharing on LinkedIn that is less professional I think nowadays but really use it as a way to build and stay in touch with your network and then also professional organizations are important so I belong to CHIPS, which is an organization of women intellectual property lawyers. I belong to TechGC, which is an organization of general counsel and other senior attorneys in the tech industry. I am a high power executive. It's a group of women who came together and formed an organization that has grown through what we call rings, cohorts of women who go through a year long leadership training. The point of that group is to bring women along in a way that we call it from success to significance. And what that means is really focusing on your legacy and your impact in your communities. I participate on nonprofit board work. I'm particularly focused on education and literacy access for all in Oakland. And through that board work, It isn't just showing up and writing a check at all. It's actually very hard work. And you will develop again very great and long lasting friendships and networks. You know, and you can network in your hobbies. I play the piano, so I maybe network through music or there might be school items, you know, where you meet other people. If you have children, if you don't have children, maybe it's another hobby. I think I come by it naturally, just staying in touch. I do have other people I know who don't stay in touch like that with all of the people they've kind of come across. But I guess it takes a certain interest in people. But even if you wanted to be strictly self-serving, you could stay in touch with people. But I I find a real richness and joy in knowing people and sharing the joy of their life with them And, and the hardships.
1: It sounds like you throw yourself fully into everything that you do to touch on a topic that's very hot right now and for good reason, diversity, equity, inclusion. Sounds like you have had all just kind of naturally the opportunity to work in some pretty diverse settings. Um, but have you seen things just to call to folks' attention about the importance or challenges of having a diverse environment?
2: Well, I think You know, diversity comes in all different fashions. It can be thought partnering, it can be cultural, it can be ethnic, it can be um, neurodiversity, it can be gender diversity, it can be, you know, centered around religion sexuality and politics, all of the different things that people bring to the table. When you have an environment that creates psychological safety and trust for everyone there, and you have things like sensitivity training if needed for folks who just aren't getting it. And you bring everyone along. Certainly, in a business environment, the organization will thrive better. In a nonprofit environment, it's the same thing. And you can never relax into thinking that it's all been solved. And if you hear anyone who speaks out in a way that makes anyone uncomfortable, you need to call it out and you need to figure out how to call it out in a way that continues the trust and psychological safety environment. I think that DEI, for me, it's just been woven in the background of my life. Having said that, it hasn't always been woven in everyone's background. And so, I would also say when you come across someone who is earlier in their journey, have empathy and try to see how you can help and support so that they understand that it truly is needed. It's not just a current social movement. It's something that the world has to come to accomplish uniformly, or we're going to have real problems in the future, just on a global level, let alone on a business level.
1: Thank you so much for sharing your experiences and your perspective. One last question that I have is, what would you say is the most important piece of advice that someone has given you? I think that'd be really nice to hear, given how successful you've been at having a wonderful career and had wonderful relationships along the way.
2: I think where I would land on that question is always be present to what's in front of you. And try to worry less about what just happened or what is to come. Because if you can find the joy and benefit, even heartache, in what is in front of you, it's important to be there in that moment because time moves quickly. And that moment will give you learning. And you can take that forward with you. And that learning may also help you let go of anything that just happened or happened in the past that is still troubling you.
1: That's great. I'm going to write that down and try to implement it in my own life. So it's been a pleasure to talk to you, Marjorie. I'm really grateful that you came on our podcast series and that you shared your experiences with us. Well, thank you.
2: It's always a pleasure to speak with you, Alison. I enjoy working with you and I think you're a wonderful human and I'm (laughs) glad that you like our products.
1: (laughs) Oh, I do. I do. I'm glowing. So thanks a lot.
0: Allison and Marjorie, thank you both so much. And as always, thanks to our listeners. For more information about Ropes and Gray's Women's Forum and our women attorneys, please visit ropesgraycom slash women. You can also subscribe to this series wherever you typically listen to podcasts, including on Apple and Spotify.